Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Get Into It with Gila. I'm Gila Glassberg, registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. And today's episode is a really, really great one. It's heavy and it's enlightening at the same time. I interviewed Naomi Shulman. Uh, Naomi is an author. She has written a book called One Life. She's written many books, but this is the book that we're discussing. And this book is about her eating disorder and her road to recovery. And the reason why the book is called One Life is because she recalls in the interview that when she was in treatment, the dietitian said to her, you only have one life, don't waste it on an eating disorder. And that was profound and uplifting and so important for me to hear and so important for many of my listeners to hear. And it's true, an eating disorder is a multifaceted disorder and it can wreak havoc on a lot of people's lives and their family lives. And not to mention diet culture is so strong in our world and it eating disorders are often, 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 unfortunately, and a lot of times not on purpose, reinforced by the culture that we live in. So please listen carefully. We address a lot of different topics. We address eating disorders. We address mental illness. We address mental illness specifically in the firm world, and we address breaking the stigma of mental illness. And I know that Brene Brown always says, don't share from the hurt, share from the heart. And as we mentioned in the interview, we both are open about some of our own struggles, and mostly in this interview, Naomi. But yeah, the conversation could be heavy, and sometimes it's uncomfortable. But it's something there to be a resource and something there to help all of us grow and change and learn from each other. And that's really the goal of this podcast. So please subscribe to the podcast. You could subscribe here on the podcast. You could subscribe at YouTube as well, because all these, most of these podcasts are also on video on YouTube. And follow me on Instagram at gila.glassberg.intuitiverd. And if you're looking to make peace with food and learn the principles of intuitive eating, go to my website, www.gilaglassberg.com, and you can apply for a 20-minute clarity call right there on the website. You can also find tons of other resources there, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, and um, all of your input and your questions are always so valued. And I love to hear from you. I love to hear your feedback. I love to answer your questions. And just thanks for being here. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Have a great day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. I know you're going to love the content here because you will gain inspiration, powerful tools and insights, and valuable knowledge. If you want more of this, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or visit me on Instagram at gilaglassberg. I'm Gila Glassberg, a registered dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. I have come to realize by counseling many, many women that this work is much deeper and greater than food and body image. It's the bigger picture challenges we face of love, belonging, acceptance, what our true values and goals are, noticing them, addressing them, and gaining skills to move forward. If you have been struggling with what your life's purpose is, or you just feel stuck in general and don't know what's holding you back, this podcast will enlighten and inspire you to take action and move forward. This podcast is about other women in the 21st century who feel that losing weight will fix all their problems or somehow meet their unmet needs. Okay, hi everybody. This is Gila Glassberg and thank you for joining us again for another episode of Get Into It with Gila. And today I have Naomi Shulman. Hi Naomi. Hi. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? What do you do and where do you live? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, first of all. Sure. Um, I live in Rochester, New York, and um, right now I'm juggling being a stay-at-home mom during COVID and being a work-at-home mom. Um, mm-hmm. I do a lot of writing and editing um, both my own projects and, uh, I do a lot of freelance also. Um, I have private clients that I do either writing, coaching or ghostwriting, um, and guiding new authors through the publishing process. Wow. That's really cool. Um, just like, just so you know, I think I told you this and the listeners know I have this dream to write a book. So, um, I was really excited when we spoke. So, so you and I spoke like two weeks ago when I was in Rochester visiting my family 
And um, I was so excited to hear a little bit about your journey and the books that you were that you wrote and the books that you like like about your story. So could you tell us a little bit about your books? Sure. Um, so I've written in a bunch of genres actually by now. I have done children's books. I've done a few self-help books on eating disorders. And I have, um, most recently, I wrote a book called With All I Am, which is about using everything that we have in ourselves our, as individuals in our personal avodah Hashem. Um, and that book is especially meaningful to me. I'm very passionate about that place where you know, spirituality and, and mental health go together. And that's something that I talk about a lot in the book. Because um, I think that something that I'm, I'm really excited about with this book is it speaks to both of those worlds and kind of normalizes mental health as something that is just part of everybody's day-to-day -day life to some extent. Um, and because of that, it's it's something that we can use to build our relationship with Hashem in a very real authentic way that is something that is unique to us as individuals. Um, I don't know what else <laughs> to say about That's that. Really, I, I really cannot wait to read that book. I really can't wait to read it. And, and when you said it's unique to individuals, did you mean like, is it unique to like Jews versus non-Jews or everyone? Like everyone could use their mental health I think everybody, because I mean, the book is written, it's geared towards uh, the observant Jewish world, just with the lingo and everything. There is a glossary in the back, um, but you know, it talks about Jewish holidays, but the truth is that Hashem created, God created every single person on this planet and has a very deep personal connection with every single person, regardless of background, where they come from, religion, anything. Right. Okay. So which, what was your first book? My first book ever um, was, uh, it was called One Life. And it's a book about recovery from disorders. And I told it from my perspective, my goal with that one, there's a lot of books out there that go through, you know, signs and symptoms of eating disorders. And One Life focuses on the inner journey. Um, you know, what are the thoughts and feelings involved? What's the mindset like? And I was very fearlessly honest about it, like gut-wrenchingly honest. Um, my mom said it was the first time when she read that book, it was the first time that she understood why I couldn't just eat the gosh darn fruit cup. Mm -hmm. and like all the thoughts that would go through my head and all of the rituals that I would do around food. Um, I really focused also on the path to recovery versus the illness itself. And, you know, because eating disorders are not about food. They become about food because that's kind of the go-to coping that a person grabs onto. But the essence of an eating disorder is on the inside. It's not, you know, because if it was about food, then okay, start eating normally and you're fine. But it's mm -hmm. not, obviously that that's not the answer. Um, so that book goes through, there's 11 chapters for the 11 weeks that I spent at a residential treatment facility. And I also, I, there's a, um, each chapter starts with a self-help tool, like something that can replace the eating disorder as a coping strategy because you can't just take it away and put it in a vacuum right because something else is going to fill that space mm -hmm. so part of recovery is learning you know so now you need something to cope with whatever the feeling or situation is so what do you fill it with and so the skills start small and then build up towards the end and you know the title one life came from something that my dietitian at the treatment center kept telling me is you only have one life. Don't waste it on an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Wow. So powerful. Um, so, so since you're comfortable with sharing about your eating disorder, do you mind sharing like how it, how it began? Um, yeah, first of all, I'm in recovery for 13 years. So 
Yeah, it's big stuff. It really mm-hmm. is. Because um, yeah. sometimes I thought like I was just never gonna see the light. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it started really early. I went through a lot of stuff when I was a kid and I really I had undiagnosed mental illness for years and years and years before anybody had any idea what was wrong with me. You know, I was just kind of like this troubled kid and nobody really knew when there were things that were going on that people didn't really know about. Um, so I felt like, you know, I'm dealing with all this stuff and sometime around, I think it was my eighth grade year. I got it in my head that like, I wasn't, I wasn't one of the thin, pretty girls, which in retrospect was kind of ridiculous because I was a perfectly, like, I wasn't, I wasn't a stick. I wasn't one of like the naturally tiny people, but I was definitely on the thinner side of normal and, I mean, that's irrelevant when it comes to this stuff. And I started feeling very self-conscious. I think a lot of girls going through puberty become all bashful about their appearance and it's a very normal thing. You know, you start developing curves and you think, oh my God, I'm out of control. What is this? Mm-hmm. Um, but it just kind of hung around there plus everything else going on in my life and comments that people would make about um, people who are overweight. And I would kind of like, I wanted to, you know, like kind of the stereotypical idea of like wanting to be good and pure and perfect. Mm -hmm. But um, it wasn't until ninth grade when my biology class did this lesson on nutrition and we had to count calories, which was a terrible idea. Any teachers out there, don't do that. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) seriously, seriously. And I remember one of the things was I got, I got super obsessive about anything Mm -hmm. like licking cookie batter. I would have to look up the calories in that little lick of cookie batter, or I wouldn't, I either wouldn't eat it. Or if I did, I wrote it down. Mm -hmm. And I remember like one of the girls in my class who was significantly heavier than me. Like, I don't know that by number, but just, you know, by appearance, her chart was like half of what mine was in reality, probably because I was writing down literally everything and rounding up. And most people in the class were barely writing down just, you know, just to get the assignment done. Um, But I took this as like, it was written in stone, if that's what it was. And oh my God, I'm out of control. I'm going to be bigger than her. And then um, in my mind, that would just make me like out of control. And then that was also the first time that I learned how many calories were in things. Cause up until then I'm like, oh, this is a healthy food. And then, and it still is, but now it has so many calories in it. And so things started to really spiral. Um, and it was also the first year I was put on medication for things and ended up with suppressed appetite. Things spiraled very fast. So I was about 14 when I first battled anorexia full force. And did, did your family know about it? Yeah, you know, at first they didn't believe it was a real thing. Um, it, you know, I'm I'm the oldest in my family, so kind of like the test run kid. Mm-hmm. I get that. <laughs> Every oldest can relate to that. To I'm not an oldest, but I have an oldest, so I get it. Yeah, yeah. we paved the way. You should be thankful. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes, I'm so thankful. It's, it's it's glorious. You should be seriously. <laughs> <laughs> You were probably allowed to do a lot more stuff at an earlier age. Am I right? Well, I'm the fourth of nine. So my parents was, were still pretty strict with me. Really? Yes. You know, my little brother, you did. Yahoo. I think mine gave up by the time I, well, the ones under me, they came really fast. So, mm-hmm. and then there were twins mm-hmm. and suddenly I think if the house wasn't burning, they were good. Yeah. Oh, totally. I, I can really go out in high school like, till much later than I was allowed to. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, fun. you know, my youngest brother, you did. Yeah. He's like the king of the house. The youngest <laughs> <brother>. <laughs> we're like, funny. we like didn't get anything. And they're like, oh, did he? We can buy $200 pairs of shoes. Sure. No problem. We're like, what? $200 pairs of shoes? Like, <laughs> that's just the way it is. That's not really the stuff I'm, I'm referring to more like I couldn't cross the street till I was 10 because, right. oh my God, there's cars in the street. Right. And then my brother and sister are like crossing at six. Like, ah, it's a little street. Yeah. Yeah. That I, that I got because my daughter, Shana, who is my oldest and she's almost eight. When we were in Rochester, my brother was letting his nine-year-old cross. I was like, you guys are insane, you know, but like not seven is not the same as nine, but like, I just can't imagine letting her cross. Like she's, a, you know, right sorry 
Okay, yeah. yeah. So your family, they knew about it. They didn't it. really understand it. And, you, you know, more than just being about oldest, it? this was their first experience. With did you try to them? hide it? What? Did you try, like, did, did you try to hide it? Did you tell them? The truth is, I didn't even understand it in the beginning. Right. I wasn't like, oh, now I'm going to have an eating disorder. Right. I was just kind of right. like, it became something I was good at. I was just on a diet. I was just, you know, excelling at the one thing that I was really good at is how it felt like, you know, yeah. and I would hear about, you know, cause there's so much in diet culture. You go to a wedding and people are like, oh, I feel so guilty. I ate this mm -hmm. cake mm -hmm. and like, oh, I'm being really good. Meaning like they were restricting what they wanted to eat, you know? Right. Right. And I felt like, wow, you know, my life is a flaming dumpster fire in every other way but here's something that I'm really good at that everybody else would kill for. And mm -hmm. people would comment me on weight loss. Mm -hmm. And even if they were concerned, I would take it as a pat on the back, like, wow. And I would just like strengthen myself in doing this. I didn't understand that it was a sickness until later on. And then, yeah, like once you get into the depths of it and your brain is starved for nutrition, things warp and you don't really see things the same way anymore. Um, but in the beginning, you know, also, I mean, my mom says that by the time I was three years old, she knew something was up, but she also thought like, okay, well, maybe it's a phase and you'll mm -hmm. grow out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, again, like they didn't have anything to compare it to. Right. So I mean, I don't, I don't fault them for it. Um, and then I think, you know, they thought teenagers are moody and brooding and yeah, sometimes, but I don't think that they knew where the boundary was from brooding to there's a real serious problem here um and eventually i mean they they figured it out um by that point i was really deep into it but i think they still kind of had this idea that it was a manipulative thing and in a way it is but it wasn't something that i could stop and it became just this beast that lived in our house with us i mean the eating disorder just it's, it's a horrible, anybody who understands eating disorders knows it's not just a diet gone wrong. It is a full-fledged life ruiner for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't until I relapsed in seminary, I think that they started to understand that this is a real thing because by that point, you know, I had turned into a good kid and pulled my life around and I was doing really well. And the thing is I had, you know, they took me to therapy um, in high school and I made kind of sort of progress, but it wasn't eating disorder specific. And it wasn't like, it kind of got it to look in check. I gained a little bit of weight and, you know, I, I pulled my grades up and I was doing okay, but it kind of was this I don't know. Like I felt like I was in like rebound catch up mode. And in seminary, I was so determined to prove myself. And I only got into one seminary because everybody else was kind of looking at me as a liability, I think, which I don't blame them, but I wanted to make the school that took me in proud. I wanted to be their star student and make that the best decision they ever made for giving me a chance. And it all fell through my fingers because um, I also, you know, I told you I had undiagnosed mental illness from really young and, you know, I have bipolar disorder and that's something that hits the fan for most people, mm -hmm. you know, late teens, early twenties. And my first real manic episode was in seminary and I starved myself out of it and relapsed into anorexia. And I was so in denial that I had no clue what was happening. Like I legit had no clue. I went to doctors. I'm like, I'm not getting my period anymore. My hair is falling out. Like what's going on? If I lift my arms, I'm going to faint. I can't stand on the buses anymore. Like there were things that were so obvious. I remember calling my parents before Shabbos one week and telling them, you know, cause I think they started to understand like when I would tell them I got a blister on my foot in September and now it's March and it's not healing, you know, like, I don't know what's going on. Like I would have like bruises and cuts that just wouldn't heal. My body didn't have the energy for it. And I didn't understand what had happened. And I told them that one week, you know, this is crazy. I weigh less now than I did when I had anorexia. And I was seriously like, it boggled my mind. Like, how is this happening? What's wrong with me? Um, 
and the doctors were basically like one of them says like so Israeli style <laughs> no offense to Israeli doctors but he was like you don't like the food in this country come on <laughs> like right. go help me something you'll be fine right and were you, were you not eating I was not eating and I was exercising like crazy and by that point I was hiding it at some point um I realized you know it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks um, I think I have an eating disorder. And once I allowed myself to think that it became, oh no, like that is the biggest crime in seminary is to have an eating disorder. You're going to get expelled. Like that's how I was thinking, whether it would have been true or not. I don't know. Um, I was in Shana when things really got bad. Um, and I, my roommate walked in on me talking about it on the phone once and I swore her to secrecy like I was that friend who was trying to get people to keep secrets about like deadly stuff and I feel bad putting her in that position I'm sorry if you're out there no because I lost touch with her I feel really bad yeah but um yeah that happens in seminary just so you know like we all I know we have no privacy it's not, it's not a good yeah. thing yeah I hear that I hear that so and I've been on the other side of horrible secrets before and you know like i feel bad doing that to her um wait so the whole shana aleph you were struggling like yeah severely and then you went home and then you went back no no, no. shana aleph i was struggling but it wasn't it didn't reach the level of you need to be in a hospital mm -hmm. i was very thin i was doing very eating disorder things like for example there were things that were horribly eating disorder that i was doing but i had no clue that it was wrong, like chewing food and spitting it out mm -hmm. so that you get to taste it and not get the calories. I thought like, oh, I found the loophole. Right. You know? right. Not throwing up because I thought bulimia was cheating because I was really sick. I was like, mm -hmm. anorexia is the gold standard. Mm -hmm. Bulimia is cheating. Right. And so, I mean, that's sick. And I don't, I don't stand by that anymore. It's all, it's all one big. It's mess. all the eating disorder lying to you, basically. Let's just of course. I just don't want anybody listening to that thinking that one's better than the other. They're both horrible. Right. Um, yeah. Right. That's why I'm saying that. Like, let's just um, be really clear that this is disorder. Yes, that's why I'm, I'm clarifying that there's there's nothing glamorous or good about any of it. And, it, you know, it's the same, by the way, compulsive overeating. It's the it's the it's not even like people say, oh, it's the flip side. No, it's the exact same thing. It's using food or something. Um, you know, so it, it's all the same as bad. It's all the same as, as you got to get help. And I think a big part of why people don't get help. I've heard this over and over and over from people that I was in treatment with is I'm not sick enough. Right. And I think insurance hey, companies. Huh? I have a book right here. Sick enough. It's a really great book. Oh yeah. Look at that. Because yeah, it's a thing. It really is a thing. A, yeah. It's Jennifer Guadini and it's, she's a doctor, an eating disorder doctor. And that's exactly what she talks about. You, you are always sick enough if you have any level of oh yeah you always deserve help it could be the tiniest you're dipping your toes in the water but the thing is you know they say a best the best anorexic is a dead one and mm -hmm. i think that you know the most powerful experience that i had with that was one time when i was at the treatment center there was this woman who came in and she like stumbled through the door and she was a walking skeleton i kid you not they sent her to the hospital right away she wasn't even expected to make it and she did eventually come back and she was admitted when she was a little more you know medically okay but i remember one of the other patients and we were all sitting there it was like a group of us like really deep eating disordered people and one of them said i don't understand doesn't anybody love her you know she's married she has parents doesn't anybody love her how did they let it get that bad which okay you can't blame family for it that's completely not the point i'm making the point i'm making is that any of us would have gotten that bad any of us could have died from this it's not a matter of you know you can't be a little bit pregnant you know mm -hmm. it all leads to baby mm -hmm. you know assuming all goes right. well but right, right, right. um right. i've heard that many times like mental illness doesn't discriminate eating disorders don't discriminate like right but it's it's just like you can't have a little bit of an eating disorder and something else that they would talk about a lot was you can't give it up halfway the whole mm -hmm. thing has to go or it's just gonna you know grow back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes that's so important so so do you go home in between shana aleph and shana Bennett? 
I did. And I went to college and I got a B plus in economics. And that was the end of the world to me because I had to have that 4.0 GPA in college. Um, and when I, that was a big, big problem for me because it was a transfer credit if I was to stay at Turo, which was my plan. Mm -hmm. So I was going to go back to, um, I was at Neve, which I loved and I owe so much of who I am today to them. They're an incredible group of people and just, I can't say enough wonderful things. I, yeah, I also went to Neve. put up with so much for me. Yeah, I went to Neve after my Shanavet. I didn't go to Shanavet, so I went that summer for six weeks. Yeah. And it was like they called it Neve Buffet. Oh, um, cute. Yeah, it was really cute because like I was I was from from birth. I grew up religious and I was like, Can I please go to the classes for people who aren't religious, please? And then it was like so fun. Like it was such a great way to like learn from the beginning. So yeah, Neve is amazing. My first year was at McClellan Esther, which was like the top floor of Neve. Mm. Not top, like better, top, like literal yeah. top floor. And yeah. it was like, you know, you're familiar? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it is no more, which is very sad. It's very um, sad, yeah, I heard. And then Shanabet, I went to, I went down to like the main floor mm -hmm. where I was completely not ready for life and it showed. <laughs> right. Um, but I was making myself crazy. I was really in prove myself mode. Like I wanted to prove to everybody that I was a worthwhile human. And one of the things that I learned that I got completely obsessive about to a dangerous degree was that, you know, at bar about mitzvah age, you are responsible, you know, in this world, you know, mm -hmm. in the best in here, but mm -hmm. You're responsible, Bezdin Shalmala, at 20. So I'm like, oh no, I'm 19 and a half and I am not ready. Mm -hmm. And I was on this quest for complete perfection by the time I turned 20. And I felt like, you know, if I wasn't achieving that, it, you know, it was because I wasn't trying hard enough. You know, anything that I didn't succeed at was because I wasn't trying hard enough. I felt like, you know, if I make every right choice, minute by minute by minute, then, you know, it's only logical that I will, you know, you do the right thing every single choice you have. And so I completely didn't get it that I'm a different person than my charismatic best friend. I am a different person than somebody who has good math abilities. You know, I just thought that, you know, I could overhaul my entire self. It was very unrealistic. And part of what happened there was the relapse. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was also manic out of my mind. I, I wrote about this in the book that after Yom Kippur, I got it in my head because one of the classes said the best time to build a sukkah is immediately after Yom Kippur. So I bounced over to my friends the second that Yom Kippur was over and said, let's build sukkahs. And they're like, let's eat spaghetti. What's wrong with you? And I called every family in Harnof that I knew. And I'm like, please, please, can I come build your sukkah? I have to build a sukkah. Can you please let me build your sukkah? And they're all like, no, <laughs> like, no. And so I rounded up whoever would listen to me and said, let's go in my dorm room. We're going to learn about sukkahs because that's the next best thing is learning about it if you can't do it. And I had a few grudging friends who came over and they're like, <laughs> Like, okay, what's wrong with you? But like, I just, and I knew I was out of control. I knew it. Like I could hear myself sounding just, you know, a mile a minute mm -hmm. and, you know, the pressured speech mm -hmm. and like all my ideas, people weren't making the leap with me from idea to idea. Cause right. I was just shoving my words like through a funnel and they were getting all messed up. And I felt so out of control. And every single, every single time that I would like, you know, want to start, I'm like, okay, start over. And I would do that like 10, 20 million times a day. And I was losing confidence in myself. And somehow my mantra became stay in control. You've got this by not eating. Mm -hmm. And then I started to feel like I don't deserve to eat unless I'm really hungry. And then it became, I never deserve to eat or only specific things. Like I have to have self-control. And there was this, um, this story that they said about like some great Sadik about um, 
he wanted to have a glass of water. Some, if, I don't remember all the details. Something like having a glass of water was on the other side of the table. Or he was, so the question was, is he gonna get up to go get the glass of water and then like make the bracha or something? I don't remember exactly the deal, but it had to do with, is he gonna do this, which is the effort just to get what he wants, which was the cup of water, or is he going to stay seated or whatever it was? I don't know. And I knew the answer before anybody said he's going to get up, go there, prove that he's going to do the effort, not get the cup of water and go back. And that was the answer. And it had nothing to do with my reasoning, which was just I was making life really hard for myself. But I don't know. I was just in this in this place where I didn't like myself and I wasn't at peace with who I was. I felt totally, totally like I just couldn't, couldn't control myself. And nobody was, you know, like if anybody knew who I really was, which is, I think so many people feel that way is yeah. if anybody knew the mess inside. Mm -hmm. So then I was very, very alone. I felt like this was my biggest secret. I couldn't tell anybody anything like I just couldn't let anybody in and it became hide it at all costs not just because I'll get in trouble for having an eating disorder but also just it became the only thing that made me feel okay and if I told people then I was going to have to get help and mm -hmm. if I don't you know and I wanted help but I didn't want to gain an ounce and right. I didn't want to give up on being perfect or trying to be perfect and all throughout this time, were your friends concerned? Did they compliment your weight loss? Like what was going on? There was with the people one dorm counselor who kept telling me it's a blessing to be thin every time she saw me. And then I got the flu at one point, which I don't know what it actually was. No, no, no. I, it really was. I, I was running a ridiculously high fever and I was really sick. But the thing is, I wouldn't have been that sick had my immunity been anything normal, you know, mm -hmm. but I went away to my cousin's house and I came back about a week later and I had dropped dramatically from already dangerously overweight. And she, Underweight. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and she, did I say overweight? Yeah. Oh, I meant underweight. Sorry. <laughs> um, I guess that's how I looked at it at the time, but no. Um, and that was when she stopped telling me it's a blessing to be thin and she just kept her mouth shut and people people were starting to stare like you don't you don't look good and okay um, so then then how'd you eventually like how'd you get help so eventually I don't remember the truth is there's so much that I don't remember about that year I kept thinking you know I'm just waiting for the right time to recover I thought I was in control you know I thought like this is a lifestyle choice and I had it all planned out that one day when I have my own apartment I'm going to keep it at 90 degrees and I won't be cold anymore and I'm going to get very fluffy couches so that it won't my bones won't hurt when I sit mm -hmm. and I thought that this was and there's whole like really sick communities out there online that promote horrible horrible things which thank god I didn't fall into that stuff because I didn't have internet in seminary which was good but I um I didn't believe that eating disorders were a real thing either. I thought I was in control. I was in the driver's seat. I didn't realize how out of control that I really was until there were two things. There was one, there was a number that I wanted to reach on the scale. And I don't say numbers for triggering reasons to people who might be going through it. But mm -hmm. I remember the day that I finally saw that number on the scale. And I thought that when I reached that, like that was going to be like, I did it. I made it. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I saw that number, I was like, that's it now what? Obviously this isn't low enough. If, if I, if things aren't good now, then obviously this isn't low enough. And then immediately a number, a new number popped into my head mm -hmm. and it's so arbitrary and it's never going to be enough. And I realized then, but then the physical was, I decided that on Purim, I was going to recover. I decided I was going to this big Suda in Beit Shemesh and I was going to be better on, and I went there and I couldn't bring myself to eat anything. And then I went back to Neve, absolutely miserable. I was on a bus of drunken yeshiva guys and they were all like so happy. And I remember feeling like, you know, the sun is shining and everybody's happy and I can't feel any warmth, any light, any happiness. I'm just crushed under this, this horrible burden. 
And then I went back and I'm like, okay, I have to eat something. And I had a little bit of soup and I got violently ill all alone behind one of the buildings at Neve. And I couldn't tell anybody. And I realized my body can't even handle food anymore. And I just felt like I'm going to die. I am actually going to die. And there's nothing that I can do about this. And I started, I mean, I had been doing it for a while, like drawing calendars and just like fantasizing about time going faster, but it just wasn't going fast enough. And I, I eventually, um, I met with one of the rabbis at Neve privately and gave him zero details and said, do you think that if somebody quits something that they started, that they're a failure? And I don't know what he figured out from that, but he said, no, absolutely not. You can quit whatever you want. And I mean, I'm going to go home and get help. Um, and I went home and as Hashgacha Pratis would have it, I was hospitalized on my 20th birthday. So that's where my quest for perfection was taking me. Um, I was in early heart failure. They told me had I waited even a few more days, I might not have made it. They were shocked I survived traveling with luggage. Um, they were shocked that I survived the plane ride. I got very, very sick on the plane, um, but I just felt like, you know, I'm nervous or whatever it is. But no, I was actually in the hospital on all kinds of medications to help my body be able to digest again. Um, I wasn't allowed to get out of bed, even to go to the bathroom because if I like sat up, it could, you know, I wasn't allowed to have more, more yogurt or fluid per day because it could kill me. You know, the, they had to get my heart healthy. I mean, that's where it was leading. And I think that as much of a wake up call as that was, you know, rock bottom in itself doesn't get you better. It can give you motivation, but also it doesn't, and I'm kind of rambling a little bit. No, you're not, you're not rambling. Cause I think that everything you're saying is important for people to, it doesn't last. Like you really, when there's inspiration, any kind, you have to jump on it because it will fade and you have to make that start. And, um, I knew that I needed to be somewhere 24 seven where recovery was going to be my life for a while, but I had it in my head that if I could ask for help, then I didn't need help because if you're well enough to ask for help, then obviously you're well enough to do it yourself, Right. which is insane. That's mm -hmm. not how it works. And I felt like I needed to get other people to um, make the decision for me so that it was, you know, legit. Um, eating disorders are very sneaky. And I was in deep, 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 deep trouble. And mm. I got myself kicked out of day treatment. And then I had to go to residential and I'm simplifying the story like crazy, but I worked really hard in residential. I'm very proud of that. It was miserable. I was scared to leave at the end because I didn't want to relapse. And, you know, it was hard. It was really, I think it was harder going home than going there because then you have to put it into practice in your daily life. And I still wasn't happy with my daily life. Mm. In the first few years were harder, but after, I mean, I look back on this and I, you know, I relate to the struggle. I understand it, but it is not a thing anymore. I'm completely normal with food. I don't have to do any food charts or anything. I'm totally, you know, intuitive about what I eat and my weight is more than I want it to be after having kids, um, a bunch of medical stuff that happened along the way unrelated to that, uh, you know, but I can be sad about what I look like sometimes. I think we all are. I'm still at a place of acceptance. I can not like that I gained a couple pounds and it doesn't affect how I eat that day. Okay, I really wanna talk about transitioning from that to intuitive eating, but I just wanna say a few <laughs> points. Okay, yeah. when you were talking about reaching a certain number on the scale and then mm -hmm. realizing that when you got to that number, you still weren't happy, Right. That happens to everyone, whether or not they have an eating disorder. And it's so important for people to hear this because um, I just hear it so often in my office and with so many people, like, I just want to be X number. Like if I get to that number, then I'll be happy. And then like, there's this whole fantasy around this number that like, number one, you will not be happy if you, you, if you get that number. And even if you are happy, it's so fleeting and you have to let's say you're on a diet and you're maintaining it because 
you're working really, really hard, like your whole life becomes maintaining a number for what? So like, even though like you were saying like you were rambling, you really weren't because that's like a really important thing for people to hear. And especially from somebody who went through this experience, like, and I know for my, for my own disordered eating days, like, yeah, the, the, the low number that I got to was never low enough. And like, we're just so programmed to shrink and be smaller and just work harder to at a number that doesn't even matter. So um, thanks for sharing that. And also, I think that um, people who have like a personality type who are more like, hmm, like, like rule followers, like they struggle in seminary because I, I, I definitely struggle with this still today. Like you hear something like, and it's a, like, let's say it's a halacha or it's like a fact when you turn 20, your status changes. So then it becomes a lot of black and white, which we know like, isn't real Judaism. So like, um, I think that that experience is normal. We're, we're in seminary, we're learning new things. We want to be good. We want to be the best. We want to keep the Torah and it becomes like very, um, I don't know, rigid, strict, black and white. And by the way, even in recovery, that was a problem for me that I couldn't admit that certain things in my religious observance fed into the eating disorder because that would make a chil Hashem, of course. Mm-hmm. My hospital dietitian was asking me how keeping kosher played a role in eating disorder and I was like, it doesn't, God gave me enough rules about food and that if anything, it should have saved me from the eating disorder. And I'll tell you 13 years in recovery, I still do not buy vegetables that need to be checked unless they were checked by somebody else, because I know that that is a dangerous road for me to go on. Mm -hmm. And my husband helps with certain things. I think I am prone to a little bit of like the religious OCD. And I don't Mm -hmm. say that lightly. I think that it can get real out of hand and, um, yeah, I'm not diagnosed with that, but I get very, very hung up on rules, especially when there's, you know, morality and religion involved. And I think that it's something, I think it's something very, very common. I think a lot of people struggle with that and you're right. It's. I definitely struggle with that. Like I know um, I read like the Robinson Kanievsky book and the Robinson Machlis book. And I have to be really careful because I just get my, like that comparison and that like perfect perfection that they sort of like portrayed in those books like to some degree they could really hurt us to be honest I'm just being honest oh yeah no for sure I mean I used to read the stories of tzaddikim when I was a kid and if I wasn't like them and my being Adam Lechavero and judging people favorably and you know I was obviously a terrible person and you know you forget the part about how a, a lot of these stories are, are I mean, all of them. They are only telling the shining moments of these people after they became great. They don't show the process of how they became, you know, they didn't come out of the womb at that high level. They worked their whole lives. I mean, right. I'm not putting them down. I'm sure that right. they were wonderful children and teenagers, but hopefully they, they grew as, you know, by the time they were an old sage, that's not attainable by anybody who's new, newer to the world. And mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get that. And then also it kind of got, you know, like this, this don't, you know, what theft means, like do not steal. I could not use a pen that was left in a classroom because what if it belongs to somebody and they didn't have it? And I couldn't take a shortcut through any of these apartment buildings because I was wasting their air conditioning just by breathing it in or something. Like, even if it was like the door was open for somebody else, like I was, so obsessed and I think that that you know I have a Rav that I'm very close with now who has guided me on the idea that like you know they say that the body is not was it the body is not a checkbook calories in and calories out is not how it works and I think you know he said that one plus one equals two but that's not how it is with God, he doesn't judge us by, you know, fact, fact, fact. There's so many nuances and so many, you know, what is your challenge with it? And what is, you know, there's so many layers upon layers of detail that only God knows. And people make mistakes. We were created imperfect. And 
we work on ourselves and God is kind and loving. And that was something that I did not understand, you know, and people would say to me all the time, like, you know, if you don't believe in tshuva, if you don't believe that Hashem forgives when you do tshuva, then, you know, that's, that's like, that's something wrong. And I would always counter back, which was the truth that I'm not doubting that God accepts tshuva. I'm doubting if I did tshuva and, you know, I was just every step of the way in my way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, t- I could relate to what you're saying actually. And I think that it's still a struggle. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not like yes. totally past that at all, but yeah, I'm better than I was when I was 20. <laughs> right. Right. And that's, that's the point, right. That we grow and like, we are challenged and we change and yeah, we don't come out of the womb. No one does perfect. Cause then what's the point. Right. Um, okay. So then, so you were in residential treatment for 11 weeks, you said? Yeah. So how did you like pick that facility and how did that come to be? They were the first one with a bed. Got it. And you, you didn't, you didn't like it. I loved it. I mean, the first couple of days I hated it and wanted to run away, but mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that's going to happen when you have somebody with anorexia and here's a plate of food, you got to eat it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It becomes, you know, yes, I wanted to be here. I remember the the worst moment of the whole thing was, I think it was the second night I was there and I had it in my head. This was the next thing. Once I get to residential, now I can recover. And then when they gave me food and I still couldn't eat it, I like just laid down on one of the couches there and snotted it up with all my tears and snot because I was just like, I'm going to die here. If I can't do it here, I can't do it anywhere. I couldn't do it on my own. I couldn't do it with therapy. I couldn't do it in day treatment. I couldn't do it. I was in day treatment for five weeks. Like I gave it a go before I got myself kicked out. And, um, and again, like I'm simplifying that whole story too. Cause it wasn't just like, Oh, I don't want to be here. So I'm going to break the rules. Like I was struggling so hard and they were kind of like, you have to gain weight or you're out. You have to, you know, not self-harm or you're out and like these were things that I couldn't do in that setting and right. um so I just didn't even try at the end and I got kicked out and then it was like you have to go to treatment so we called a few places all over the country and the first one with a bed was Renfrew in Florida and mm-hmm. they saved my life they were wonderful wonderful but that doesn't make it easy for sure not so what can you tell us a little bit about like the coping skills that you were referencing before like in the 11 chapters um gosh (laughs) so I think a big part of it is knowing when to use what Mm -hmm. because like for example dealing with your emotions about things is not for in the middle of a meal I used to think that if I ate when I was emotional I was therefore an emotional eater And so I would have to be totally calm before I would eat. And eventually I realized that, no, the way to get through a meal is to distract the heck out of yourself and get it done. And actually they knew that I wanted to do therapy. Like I was there to get better and I had all these things I wanted to talk about. And they held that over me. They're like, we're not doing any therapy until you were eating your meals. And they got me good because I had to eat. Right, right. I did it. So you're saying one of the coping strategies is to distract yourself during a meal and not during the meal. Cause you know, that's when you're like in the battle, you don't stop to, you know, think, Oh, I got to put a bandaid on my foot in the middle of the meal. You can Mm -hmm. do that after. And they do, they have the after meal support process groups and um, you know, the taking care of yourself. I also learned self-care is a whole lot more than bubble baths. You know, there's, you got to let yourself cry. You got to eat normally. You have to sleep normally things you don't necessarily want to do, but it's good for you. And, Mm -hmm. um, also having a list of things to do when you're kind of feeling like you're in crisis, um, who to call, um, if you need to call like, and, and who to call for what, um, you know, not every friend is the right person to call for everything so you might have a friend who's good to hang out and like helps you laugh and and you're sad and there might be somebody else who's good to vent to and some you know 
Yes, I do know. It's common sense, but sometimes when you're like kind of doing life 101, you yeah. need to go back to basics. Yes, and I think that that's a, these are coping skills to use, even if you don't have an eating disorder. Oh, um, yeah, for sure. I mean, yes. so many of these things are just, you know, when I did 12 steps for a while, I went to EDA, Eating Disorders Anonymous. Um, it wasn't a huge part of my recovery, but it was cool for, help, for you know, connecting with other people. And there's so much in the 12 steps that like addiction or not, eating disorder or not, these are rules to live by you know, just the authenticity Definitely. and yeah. facing yourself for who you are and accepting the reality of who you are and what you do and not glossing over. It doesn't mean you have to tell everybody everything, but right. at least to be honest with yourself about where you're at in different parts of your life, see yourself honestly and without shame. Like it's, right. you know, you're not, you're not like when you look at somebody else, you know, I think everybody knows that when you're looking at somebody's Facebook profile, you're not seeing everything in their life. Right. When you're looking at them, you know, on the street or at Shoal or even just hanging out with them, you're also not seeing everything. You can't see what they're really feeling or thinking. You don't see what the struggle was when they were running carpool all chipper and happy, you know? Right, 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 right. right. Did you, did you ever read the book um, Untamed by Glennon Doyle? We were talking about this a little bit. No, it sounds familiar though. So I don't even know if, I don't even remember if she talks about this specifically in the book because she has a bunch of books, but she struggled with bulimia when she, at the age of 11. And then she struggled with like drug addiction. And she, I think that she found out she was pregnant when she was like an alcoholic or something like that. And she started going to these meetings. She wanted to recover. And she was like, oh, this is when I found like, these are my people, you know, like, and I related to that. And I, I had been to some of the 12 step meetings also. Like I really went, somebody recommended it to me, not um, for eating, but it was very interesting. I only went a few times. Um, it was like super, super, super interesting. And, and I, I thought back to that. I thought back to that when I heard um, Glennon talking about this, because I was like, I feel like a lot of this has to do with like, like personality types that, that we didn't get to choose. And like, let's say we're a highly sensitive person or an empath, or we just feel pain at a different level than other people. And sometimes that affects our mental health. Mostly, it usually does. And like for other people who don't get it, it's really hard to f like find support and find almost like normalcy because other people don't get it. So you just feel so besides for the pain that you feel, you feel so odd, you know, you know what I'm saying? I do. Can I, can I talk about Chazkino? Yes. So tell us about Chazkino. Okay. So, um, just, I, you're talking about a lot of people going to 12 step meetings and saying that these are my people. There were so many times, particularly with the bipolar, where I was jealous of <laughs> people with addiction because they had a place to go and a group and, I'm sorry, but self-help groups and stuff with bipolar, I have never seen that work well. Like there's certain things and for sure with eating disorders, my God, you can't have a self-help, <laughs> you know, you need to have that guided. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm not saying like EDAs, that's very regimented and it's very specific, but it's, um, I'm talking about like more than that. And again, oh, the truth is the 12 steps are all very regimented if they're done. Yeah, right. yeah. But the point is like, I just felt like I couldn't find my group. And especially as a Jewish woman, there just wasn't anything. I was searching all over the place, like for a message board, for a phone meeting, for anything. And there just wasn't. And um, I went on one message group at one point, it was uh, from help.com, from support, from support.com. And I met up with Zahava List there and we talked on the phone and I was saying like, I wish there was something, you know, and I, at that point I was starting to think about starting something. And she said, oh, I've had this whole plan for years. I want to do this group and I have a name for it and everything. And um, she's like, well, you do it with me. Will we really start? And I said, yeah. And she's like, really? Like, you're not going to back out. And I'm like, no, <laughs> um, we started it as just a weekly phone group. And I knew there was a need for it, but I didn't realize how much of a need there was. And within the first two to three years, I think we had over a thousand members. And wow. It's all people who struggle with bipolar? 
not just bipolar, but all mental health issues. And it's not just for the, you know, people themselves, but also family members. So it's all Jewish women, mm-hmm. um, not all of them themselves. Like they might be married to somebody with a mental health disorder, but, um, and it, it's amazing. It's peer support. So we have phone meetings twice a week, um, which started because the Monday night meetings, we had people joining from England and, wow. Wow. and it was the middle of the night for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there was a need for another group. So we started Wednesday afternoons, um, mo- mostly for international, but that's a pretty big group now, I think too. Wow. And there's, you know, online support and there's um, like a support list that people can, you get, you get a copy of the list if you agree to be on the list, um, which I think is fair. Um, yeah. Like a, a Tehillim group, people can dive in for each other. And there's an annual Shabbaton, um, a lot, a lot, a lot of things, a lot of ways for people to meet up. And it's something that grew beyond my wildest imaginings really fast because people are like, they want to be understood and supported and something that just blows me away about Cheskenu and the members of Cheskenu is they are like, there's no pretense. You don't have to hide anything. Everybody knows why you're there. Everybody knows that you have a connection with this subject. There's no judgment. There's no stigma. And that's a big part of what we aim for at Cheskenu is stop the stigma, you know, mm-hmm. the stigma stops here is mm-hmm. not a lot of our stuff. And um, it's just, it's so wonderful to see women from all different walks of Judaism also just, you know, at the Shabbaton, I was blown away. Like there's people, you know, who mainly speak Yiddish from very, very Hasidish backgrounds, talking to people from super modern backgrounds. And they're just, you know, the common ground, you're a Jewish woman with a mental health struggle. And it's just real, like, you know, you can quit the small talk, you can quit hiding behind whatever mask you use when you're out in, you know, the world. And it's, it, I just think it would be so wonderful if it wasn't, you know, nobody, nobody feels ashamed of a broken arm, but when you have something wrong mentally or emotionally, you know, why should that be any different? And um, I think it was something that you had asked me in the email about how, how I decided to be open about my struggles. I think part of it came, you know, people had asked me, like, you published with all I am under your real name and not a pseudonym. And it was something that I thought about, like, I really did, because this was a very personal book. But at the end of the day, I believe in standing behind what you write. And also, you know, and this was something I had with the ebook. How do you say there's no shame in a problem if you will not put your name on it? Yeah. And I really believe that there is no shame in having a problem. And there's people, you know, for example, even in the mental health world, there are certain mental health issues that are stigmatized more than others. Yeah. Borderline personality, for example. There are a lot of people who like, you know, there's so many assumptions made about it that nobody wants to admit that they're struggling with that. And I've heard people say in Cheskenu, it's the first time they're able to be open that that's a struggle. I mean, these are all people, they're not just showing up to, you know, to just, you know, they're all there because they're working on themselves because they want to support other people and support their own healing. And I just think it's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. More rambles. Thank you. (laughs) No, you're not rambling. Like I, I know like people have told me like, like I blog about like my mom's death and I blog about going to therapy and anxiety and stuff like that. And people are like, I can't believe you're so open. Oh my gosh, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, first of all, like I say this all the time, but like I counsel people and I'm counseled. So like, I just see the other side. Like I I always say this, if, if somebody like looks like they're doing it better than you, like they either like have more help, Hashem gave them a personality that's more relaxed or they're just faking it. because like we all just struggle at the end of the day and we all have struggles and you're right like if somebody was struggling with cancer they wouldn't feel shame they didn't choose it no one chooses these things these are the things that Hashem gave us and nobody chooses mental illness either right exactly nobody chooses to survive trauma nobody I mean to you know what I mean like to have gone through certain things uh, that give you struggles like nobody Nobody picks what the hand that they're, they're dealt. Right. 
I actually was just when I was in Rochester, I was actually um, I listened to the book on audiobook um, on grief and grieving by um, David Kessler and Elizabeth Kubler Ross. And something that really, first of all, I'll just say this that in the week and a half that I was away, I tried to not be on social media and try not to work. And I was really trying to like, you know, process my own grief and process the fact that I was in Rochester without a mother and just be like, you know, honest with myself and honest with who, what, what I was going through. And it was like, it happened to be like pretty apropos that that book became available because I was waiting for it for a long time from the library. And I, was, I took like the week to like listen to it. And I remember David Kessler, he was talking, reading the book and he was saying that a lot of times we say like, if anyone could fight it, if anyone could beat it, it's her or it's him, you know, like when they were talking about any type of illness. And I remember like, I wrote that in my blog when I wrote about my mom's death, I wrote like, I still think about this now. Like she was so strong. She had such a strong personality and oh wait, something just popped up on my computer. Sorry. And um, I hope it's still recording. And, um, and I remember thinking like, if anyone could beat it, it's her. And when she died, I was like, like I was a little bit angry at her, like, and 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 I and I heard that in the book that we feel anger towards the person who died. I was like, why couldn't she beat it? Like, why couldn't? And 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 now, like now, sorry if I'm like making you uncomfortable, but no, not at all. I'm so sorry for your loss. I loved her so much. Yeah, me she too. Grieved every day by this entire community. Yes, I know, and like. I hate it. like when I heard that I was like very much like validated like like people don't like give up on their battle with eating disorders or cancer like you know like the it's not their fault it's nobody's fault and like we do our best and we try our best and Hashem runs the world and with every like illness and pain like we I don't know I just want people to hear this like let's just be real like we no one wakes up and picks. I wish I had bipolar. Nobody picks that. Nope. Anyways, this was really awesome. <laughs> on that chipper note. <laughs> on that chipper note. And do you, is there anything you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, I'm going to put everything, like all your information on your books and the links in the show notes so people can find Oh, you. sure. Um, thank you. There's, um, yeah, there's one thing about mental illness that I did, did want to mention also, which is that every diagnosis means something different to every person who's going through it. And bipolar, depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive borderline, all of these things are, the labels are only helpful as far as conceptualizing what you're dealing with, finding like the path towards healing from it and being able to connect with other people who are who are similarly struggling, but it doesn't define who the person is. And also, I mean, I remember in Shaduchim, I was very careful about using the word bipolar because people have all kinds of ideas. I know I did. You know, when I first heard bipolar out of the mouth of my therapist, I was like, no, because that's for people who are like in mental hospitals their whole lives. And I didn't understand that first of all, I think it's like one in a hundred people have some form of bipolar. It is very common. Um, I happen to have a more severe form of it, but you can still live a totally normal life. I'm a mom, I'm a functioning mom. I am just, you know, I'm working. I'm a productive member of society. I'm an author. Author, I am normal, whatever that means. Mm. (laughs) I think that, you know, if you met me and I didn't tell you, I don't think that you'd have any idea. And there's so many people out there who are fighting whatever battle or, you know, it's, it's not something that affects me unless I'm in an episode. I just have to be careful about certain things that can trigger it certain, you know, too much caffeine, for example, is, is a big trigger. Um, any kind of like those, those breathing steroids, I can't do those because they, they don't work. Like, so I've had to be careful, like if I've had Anyway, um, there's uh, a lot that people don't necessarily get when they hear a diagnosis in regards to a person. It doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. And the same thing when you hear it about yourself, it doesn't, it's not a value label. Right. Just want to say that. No, I think that's really important in general. Like, with And I think there's some pluses in it too. Like I know with bipolar, I think that 
and also things that I've been through, like I wouldn't choose these things, but there are hidden brachas in them. I think that a lot of people have been through pain, they have more empathy, or they have the capacity for greater empathy. And with bipolar, I think, you know, it comes along with the capacity for deeper feeling also. And that's not a reason to avoid treatment, you have to treat it. But I think that looking for the silver linings and whatever it is, you know, it's here, you might as well find the goodness in it, because I think that there, there is goodness in it. Wow, that I think, feel like that's just going to help so many people, like even the last thing that you just said, like, I hope so. And it's not fluff. It really is not fluff. Mm-hmm. I think it's fluff. They could email me and I'll tell them it's not fluff. I feel like because <laughs> you, you're the one that like is going through it or has gone through it. Like, and like you're saying it without shame and without wincing and without covering it up and speaking low and exactly what you said. If you're, if you're going to say there's no shame about it and you're, then you're going to put your name on it Yep. and you didn't choose it. And look how you're using it as a positive thing in your life to help other people. It's like really incredible. Thank you. Sure. So thanks for joining us. And I will, yes, it was amazing. I will put all your information in the show notes so people could find you. Wonderful. Okay. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for being here on my podcast, Get Into It with Gila. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and what intuitive eating is, please visit my website at www.gilaglassberg.com or follow me on Instagram at gilaglassberg. Thank you so much. Have a great day.